Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, as I was studying, I'm kind of, you know, as my normal method of studying, I outline very far in advance as a general rule, and I was I was kind of getting to 6 and 7 and into part of 8, to, and I'm just like, I can't get there. And I realized, no, we still need to do chapter 4 and 5 and so much amazing stuff here in the book of Nehemiah. And tonight, overcoming opposition. And as you look at this passage, and as we've already kind of set the stage for it, we see this incredible leader, we see this monumental task. And so whenever you have a monumental task, and that monumental task glorifies the Lord, you can count on monumental opposition. Because God wants it done if people that the Lord loves and is called and anointed set their mind to it, then what the enemy's going to do is pull out all the stops. Maybe some of you have had those experiences in your life to where maybe you have a loved one that's that doesn't know Jesus and it's like you're running out of time. They're Maybe they're near the end of their days, or maybe you're in a situation where you just feel like this is it, and you remember those times when you go to share the Lord with them, and all of a sudden it's just like your tongue is tied in knots, and the dog's biting your leg, and you know just these attacks come from everywhere, and all of a sudden you don't have any idea. You you can't remember a verse to save your life, and the the enemy hates it when God's purposes are accomplished. And so tonight we have one of the most practical applications of intense spiritual warfare, and it goes on and gets very personal. Uh, it becomes one of those things that we can look at, and certainly in leadership as pastors and leaders in the church, very applicable. But really it's for each of us. And so tonight, as we begin to build together, we're going to face some opposition together as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for the gift of worship, being able to come and just plop ourselves down in your in your house, Lord, and to learn of you and to praise you and to offer our lives afresh and anew as living sacrifices. We pray that you receive, Lord, the glory for this evening, that you would work now in the midst of your people by the power of your word. We love you. We thank you for this time. Pray that you now would speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Nehemiah chapter 4. But it so happened when the Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and he mocked the Jews. And so this chapter begins with an open statement that plainly gives us a view of what's happening. And I want you to remember who Sanballat is. He's one of these three guys that's come on the scene that is directly opposed to the very thing that God's people have set out to do. He hates the fact that the Jewish people have once again turned their attention to the Lord because up to this point in time, Satan has pretty much had a heyday. And let me give you a little background information here. The children of Israel, the Jewish people, have not been walking with the Lord very closely, if at all, for about 160 years by now. They they have had a marginal walk with God if they've had a walk at all. Very important is that background information. Because whenever you have spent a time away from the Lord, 
and you are in the process of coming back to the Lord and making him first, that is when the enemy turns up the heat. Because he does not have to beat you, he simply has to discourage you. If he can get you discouraged enough, you'll simply give up. And that is the picture that we have here. And so Sanballat is going to be, in essence, we just keep him on the enemy's side. Nehemiah, the children of Israel on God's side. And so the battle unfolds for us here uh, in this in this incredible exchange. And it says there in verse 2, And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And now his partner in crime comes alongside, and now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. The enemy comes at us, Scripture declares, like a flood. And very often that flood is a flood of words. It's that, it's that condemnation, it's that fear, it's that doubt, it's that desire that we as humans have uh, to be approved of by people, uh, to be people pleasers, to do well, to prosper, uh, to not have anything in our lives that someone can look at and say, well, that's not too good. And as we look at this wall and as you look at what uh, period of history this is, you, you go to Jerusalem and you look at that step structure and the, rem- the remnants of this particular rebuilding, these guys weren't exactly master craftsmen. This section of the wall that got rebuilt is better called a pile of rocks than a wall, to be quite honest. It was no masterful piece of engineering that the children of Israel were engaged in. They were simply trying to build up something tall enough to fortify themselves so that they could once again maintain some semblance of order uh, in their culture and begin to worship the Lord. And so they, they were not master builders. These were not stonemasons. This was not like the construction of the walls that Herod undertook sometime later uh, this was very primitive construction. And it's interesting to me in the ministry and in church in general, uh, we're often working with people who are not exactly gifted at the things that they're doing at times. But that doesn't stop them from being absolutely wonderful before the Lord. You know, we, we don't have a whole bunch of people with doctoral degrees that are in children's ministry that have doctoral degrees in education. Uh, We're not dealing constantly with people who are the very best. We're dealing with the people who are willing to be used of the Lord. And that's what's important to God. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for availability. And whenever you have that, the result is, from the world's perspective, well, look at that. I mean, that Calvary Chapel, isn't that an old community center? Wasn't that a bar? Don't they meet in an old bar? You know, have you ever looked at it? building's the weirdest building. It's got like a roof inside the building. It's like this. Yeah. I've, I've had people come and they go, well, you know, it's not like the cathedrals in, in Europe. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you for the compliment. From a world's perspective, you look at the things that God does sometimes, you go, man, that's a motley crew, not a great result. And you can buy what the enemy's saying here if you listen to the wrong voice. If you're not hearing from the Lord, you, you can all of a sudden make it about trying to figure out who's the very best person. That's why I've seen some pastoral searches to where the church has gotten involved and, and you have everybody casting their votes and they're out looking for the most qualified person and they miss the most anointed person. Guy's got 45 little acronyms after his name, but he is not, she is not called of the Lord. And so a beautiful wall goes up, but it's absolutely of no value to the Lord. And so the enemy begins to mock and to jeer. One of the things that we get sometimes is Calvary's, yeah, well, you know, your pastors are all a bunch of, you know, old has-beens that used to be something, and now they're a failure at that, so they're pastors. Well, in some cases, that's pretty true. And we also have 10 of the 15 largest churches in California are pastored by Calvary Chapel pastors. And we have tens of thousands of missionaries all over the world. Some of the most amazing things that God's doing here in, in this country are being done by some of those guys that haven't got a clue. They had two brain cells. They rubbed them together, and one got lost. <laughs> but they love Jesus. They love Jesus. Scripture says, man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And this is a heart issue. So we can expect the enemy to come after the, the heart, come after the mind, to engage in psychological warfare, if you will. Along those lines, the pastoral search committee, after services, decided one day that they were going to take their new pastor out and kind of put him to the test. And so they wanted to make sure that the new pastor could do what the old pastor could do. So they happened to be on a river, and there was an island out in the middle, and a little picnic ground out there that the church used frequently. And so they decided to get about halfway out, and then all of a sudden they told the new pastor, well, we forgot the hot dog. Somebody's going to have to swim after him. And so the pastor looks at him kind of sheepishly and just walks across the top of the water, gets the hot dogs, and comes back. Of course, the pastoral selection committee, see, I told you, he's no good, he can't swim. <laughs> you, you can miss the obvious at times, you know. You, you, it's, it's like, what are you looking for? I mean, if you're looking for the world's things, okay, he can't swim. But if you're looking for God's things, he just walked across the top of the water. You, you, you see, we, we need to make sure we're looking at the right things. Interesting story about Robert Fulton, if you know anything about him. He's a tremendous inventor from the 1800s and uh, during specifically the mining era here in California, the 1840s or so, the 49ers as we call them. During that period of time, he invented the steamboat. He also invented uh, the Pelton wheel, which is a wheel that goes on a river and it creates a, a power source. And when he had invented 
the first steamboat. They put it out on a on a river, and they were getting ready to test it. And as he cranked it up, the thing barely started. And so uh, while it was in that process of starting up, because the steam engine took a while, it had to build up pressure and all those kind of things. The crowd's looking at it, and they're just they're chanting. And finally, they're just mocking him. It'll it'll never start. It'll never start. It'll never start. And finally, it started. And so the boat begins to chug its way uh, downstream. And then eventually they said, it'll never stop. It'll never stop. It'll never stop. You know, it's just like you can't make people happy at times. You you have to understand that in ministry. You're going to have disagreements. There's always going to be somebody with an engineering degree that comes along. Oh, I wouldn't do it that way. The fact of the matter is a lot of times they wouldn't do it, period. They're like the nobles that we saw in the last chapter. Don't want to get dirty, but I want to tell you how to get it done. So we need to be careful because very often, and we're going to see this in the next chapter, that criticism can come from right within our own ranks. And in this case, some guys that were pretty close to the situation, they lived in the community. There, there are sand ballots and Tobias in virtually every group. And there is a high cost for doing the work of the Lord. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. People are going to think you're nuts. You're going to embark to do things that that man says, that's just silly. Why would you ever want to do that? We need to stay on course with the Lord. Nobody is immune to those attacks. And as Oswald Chambers uh, said, he said, no leader is exempt from criticism and is Humility is nowhere more clearly seen than in the manner in which he accepts that criticism. You know, sometimes it's easier to just to, to give in to it and say, you know, yeah, you're right, man, this wall stinks. This is the lousiest wall I've ever seen. And man, these people that you gave me, God, I mean, they're the most rotten, worthless stonemasons ever. I mean, look at this wall. If that's your attitude... You'll never accomplish anything for the Lord. Because God's not going to send you the best, necessarily. He's going to send you the most dedicated. And that's what we see in this particular chapter. We see dedication. Matter of fact, I would say to you that if you never get criticized, chances are you're not doing much for the kingdom either. If you never have opposition, you're probably not doing much for the kingdom either. If everybody likes you, you're probably not doing much for the kingdom. Because you're going to make people mad. You're going to make them upset. The world's going to look at what you're doing. They're going to mock, ridicule, curse, and say all manner of things falsely against you. Just as they did for the Lord. When Jerusalem was being worked on by this motley crew, by these families, by those who had just simply taken up the part of the wall behind their own house. Think of what they're working with. We find nothing in here that says everyone was issued professional stonemason's tools. We don't even know that they had any tools at all. Chances are they're just stacking these rocks wherever they can find them. The wall is now about halfway up, and the work is underway. And the bottom line is, it's actually working. Because realistically, as far as a battlement's concerned, as far as protection's concerned, it really doesn't matter what that wall looks like. 
Sure, it'd be nice if the walls were perfectly straight. Sure, it'd be great if the joints were all dressed out wonderfully. It'd be awesome if every stone was carved to fit exactly where it went. But the fact of the matter is, a wall's a wall, amen? If you don't believe that, I'd crawl into a sand trap at a golf course that's got steep sides on it. I'm telling you, you, you can't get out of them. You sure can't hit a golf ball out of them. They do just fine just because they're simply steep and deep. And in this case, that's pretty much all they had. They had a nice tall pile of rocks up to this point. And so as he begins to speak, the psychological warfare unfolds before us in this chapter. And all of a sudden he, he ends up with an extra friend or two. His first attempt to stop God's work to discourage them is basically just through ridicule. Isn't that weird? You would think with a project of this magnitude and size that has this much spiritual implication that that it had gone undone for so long, you would think initially that God would have just simply sent, you know, or the enemy would have simply sent an army at this point in time to just wipe the wall out. Here's the problem. Because it didn't look like much, the enemy wasn't too terribly concerned. And sometimes we have to realize that it is the fact that we are working with less than ideal circumstances and less than perfect tools and less than perfect materials that actually keeps the enemy at bay because the enemy is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't have all the power. He can't do everything at once like God can't. And so sometimes it's the very fact that we're actually working together as a ragtag band, if you will, that enables God to, to work through us to accomplish even greater things than if we'd assigned a couple of legions of stonemasons to go do something like this. The progress is, is what gets the enemy's attention finally. And in essence, the enemy now is becoming threatened. And he's also behind the curve significantly because the wall's halfway up. And so he decides to do what the enemy always tries to do. Discourage, dismay, be incensed, act angry, sarcastic, mocking, scoffing, jeering, sneering. You, you guys heard those things before, I'm sure. People, you're going to do what? You're going to go into the ministry? You're teaching Sunday school? How much do they pay you for teaching Sunday school? Nothing. Are you crazy? You give up your time? I mean, your valuable time? You, you do all that for what? What do you do? Well, I change diapers. And you don't get paid? The enemy begins to mock and jeer and sneer and poke at you. And if you're not careful, some of those things can stick. When I first told my parents that I was going into ministry, I heard some things that I can't even repeat here tonight. explicative lace tirades of my inability to understand the most simple things of life. It's like, are you crazy? You're going you're, you're gonna, to you're gonna risk your family's future on that? Uh-huh. And after 25 years, it's worked out pretty well. Haven't always had all the answers. Still don't have all the answers. But you know this, if God be for you, who can be against you? Well, I'd rather be with God in a bad situation than without Him in a good situation. Amen? 
basically the enemy was getting jealous. I think the people are being criticized because now there's actually some real change going on, unlike what's happening in our country right now. Real change is not what we're seeing. This was real change. This was political, social change. Stuff was happening. Things that hadn't happened in a very long time were starting to starting to come on the horizon. People were looking at it going, man, I think we can do this. It's a grassroots effort. The opposition, the enemy, definitely had a different plan. What we were going to do, what you and I would do, uh, I, I want you to observe how the ridicule goes. Notice some things here, five of them. What are these feeble Jews doing? That's mocking. They're questioning the, even the ability to accomplish anything. What are they going to do, restore it for themselves? Those walls had been in disrepair for 160 years. And the longer things are messed up, the more the enemy tries to, to mock and ridicule. The longer people individually haven't walked with the Lord, the more the enemy's going to come along and mock and ridicule. Well, you haven't needed God all this. Now, what do you need, a crutch now? You become so weak you have to turn to religion. Anybody heard that one? You know, are you, are you so mentally deficient that you're going to go listen to that preacher man? And the enemy mocks, the enemy bites, the enemy tries to get to you with those little daggers, those little darts. Can they offer sacrifices there in verse 2? Attacking the faith. What good are your sacrifices going to do? You know what you really need? You actually need a real professional wall-building crew. That's what you need because you guys are pathetic. That's how the enemy works. Does the same thing today in our world. Says you guys are pathetic. All you do, you go to you go to church how many times a week? You go twice? I go twice too, but it's twice a year. Christmas and Easter, whether I need it or not. Sure, I'm a Christian, but aren't you putting a little too much effort into that that relationship you have with the Lord? The enemy hasn't changed his tactics much. Still does the same thing. Can they finish it in a day? Another little snide remark. Because of the length of time that that wall had sat there in disrepair, you know, now the enemy comes along and tries to overstate the obvious. The obvious is the city's a mess, amen? Everybody knows that. Nehemiah knew it. The people living there certainly knew it. But sometimes you, you'll get those little darts from the enemy to where you just like, oh, that's right. I've shared with you sometimes, you know, I'll be driving around, and I, I love our national parks. I say get rid of the Department of Bureau of Indian Affairs and some of these other things. Don't mess with the national parks. I love the national parks. But you go and you read the signs. and 7.3 billion years ago... This cliff was over here. And then this cliff caved in and all the rocks. And you read the signs, you're going, maybe they're right. And the enemy fires his darts right into your mind. There's no creator. It all happened by random chance processes. Over billions of years. From goo to the zoo. To you. 
you know, you, you know, finish it in a day. What happened? You know, I don't know. Yeah, the big bang. And the enemy does that to us. Fires his little darts right into our minds. Well, you know, you don't think like everybody else thinks. Everybody else was saying this is impossible. Don't even try. And you're you're tackling the project. What are you dumb? A fifth thing. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Begins to say, look how impossible the task is. I mean, what are you going to do? You're really going to go through all that junk and that trouble? You really think that you can get over those things of your past? You really think that all those things that happened to you, God can just heal them? You really think you're going to get victory over that alcohol or over that relationship or those drugs? I mean, that stuff's been there for 37 years. You're not going to be able to get away from that stuff. It's always going to be there. Now, what the enemy says? And God's saying, no, we can clean that up. We can make it better than it ever was. But you got to have faith and you got to get started. The enemy is going to criticize. The first response of Nehemiah to this accusation, notice what it is. It's exactly what you would think it would be. It's exactly what he did when he heard the first time that things weren't so good. Verse 4, Hear, O Lord, our God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach to their own heads and give them as plunder into the land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they provoked you to anger before the builders. He didn't act with criticism. He didn't revile. He didn't do exactly as Peter testified of Jesus while being reviled. He did not revile in return while suffering. He made no threats. He kept trusting himself into the hand of the Lord. That's exactly what 1 Peter chapter 2 says about Jesus. We're to do the same thing. When the enemy comes against you with accusations and threats and tries to make you feel like a, like a dope, don't give him the satisfaction of trying to do battle with him verbally. You ever notice when people come and they attack you for whatever reason about your walk with the Lord, have you ever noticed you accomplish nothing by attacking them back? Not a thing. Why people go, well, you know, I just need to know more about this so I can really debate or argue it. I have never seen it happen, not in my entire walk with the Lord. I have never seen anybody engage in an argument with somebody else about something that they've said that was in response to a person's walk with the Lord, and they've begun to mock and ridicule and say, well, you know, you believe in creation. I have never seen a single person one to Christ through arguing with somebody like that. Not once. Never seen it happen. But you know what I have seen happen? People do exactly what Nehemiah just did. Turned to the Lord and said, God, this is your problem. And proactively begin to pray. Nehemiah acknowledged his feelings. I, I want you to notice something here. He didn't just go, oh, well, that didn't hurt. 
He didn't just say, well, you know, I'm sure glad they mocked me today. Boy, I feel better now. He didn't go into some, you know, pseudo-ridiculous funk. And, oh, I feel bad, but I guess I should feel bad because I'm one of God's chosen people. You know, it wasn't self-deprecating. He was real with God. He said, hear, O God, how we are despised. He said, that kind of hurt. But he knew he couldn't do anything about the hurt by simply turning around and trying to fire back at Sanballat and Tobiah. Yeah, well, your mom wears army boots. And, you know, you guys are Amorites and... Mm, you guys can't build either. It doesn't accomplish anything. Pointing out other people's faults and weaknesses and where they're wrong and how they haven't got a clue does not win the day. It never does. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you for my name's sake. That's what Jesus said to do. Just go, I'm sorry you feel that way. Take your hurt to the Lord and say, Lord, man, I, don't, I really don't like what was just said. But I sure don't want to create something that's even worse by responding to it wrongly. And that's where Nehemiah's at. Nehemiah had a sense of God's presence, God's sovereignty. Uh, he was just like David before Goliath. Amen? David didn't go out there and go, man, he's huge. He's going to kill me. David didn't go over there and, and, you know, point at him and go, you big stinky. Can you imagine David? You know, he's out there mocking Goliath. I'm thinking, no. I'm thinking he's going, okay, where's the big rocks? I'm going to get the rocks. Lord, these are your rocks. In Jesus' name, bless where they go. It's the same deal. The battle belongs to the Lord, is what your Bible says. It's not your battle to begin with. It's His battle. you got to fight it His way. If you fight it the world's way, and you, you return evil for evil, and you revile and you're reviled against, if you do things the world's way, you will not win for the Lord. You, you may stand your ground. You, you may not go backwards, but you certainly will not win for the Lord. God gives you that wisdom at times to just simply be silent. I've had people, I, my trips down to Brazil sometimes as I'm sitting in these eight, nine hour long meetings with attorneys and we're speaking at least two languages, sometimes three. And, you know, people are just, ah, the last thing in the world you want to do is throw in, yeah, well, you guys are just not nice. You know, that's not going to accomplish anything. It's like, I'm sorry you feel that way. What can we do to make it better? Totally disarms them. Every argument you will ever get into can be stopped by cessation of hostility. You realize that, right? As soon as somebody says, I'm not going to fight, fight's over. Nobody's going to come over and grab your hands and, you know, <coughs> Try and whack themselves with it. It's over. Take the high road. And to do that, Nehemiah took this prayer and he stayed focused. He had power. He had authority. He was the governor of Judah. 
He had been sent by the king. It wasn't like he was powerless. It matters how you use your power. It doesn't matter if you have power unless you know how to use power. And very often the power needs to be used in such a way that it causes the least amount of conflict. Because he could have said, do you know who you're talking to? Nehemiah could have crossed his arms, just like I'm doing right now. Do you realize that I am the governor of Judah? Do you know who I am? Do you know what kind of hell I can rain down on you? I mean, my boss is the king of Persia. I can make you miserable in more ways than you can count. Isn't that how the world responds a lot of the times? You got in those conversations, maybe in the workplace and the things that God's calling you to do. It's amazing power under restraint does a lot of things. Let me give you an example. His name begins with J. The power of the entire universe wrapped up in human flesh, and it was fully restrained in humility. When he was reviled, he didn't speak back to Pilate. When he was struck, he didn't hit back. When they tried to press the crown of thorns on his head, he didn't you know, strike him dead right then and there. He came with a mission, and that mission was accomplished in the humility. Verse 6, And so we built the wall. Notice it didn't deter them for one second. Okay, all right. So we're not the world's greatest wall builders. Yep, i got to admit, the part over there behind Zedekiah's house, it's a mess. You know, some of those stones, yeah, they're probably not going to do much if a goat climbs over the top of it, but we're going to keep building anyway because that's what God told us to do. You have to keep doing what God told you to do. That's the deal. That's what Nehemiah does. It's what the people do. And the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people, notice this, had a mind to work. And in fact, an actual literal rendering of it was they worked with all their heart. The people worked with all their heart. Notice it doesn't say they got smarter. doesn't say they got more resourceful. It doesn't say that they actually got better at laying up stones. It just simply says they put their heart into it. And so the wall is now halfway up, continuously all the way around the city is the way the Greek or the Hebrew language renders this. And, and, it, and he's just basically saying, you know what? We're just going to keep doing what God's called us to do. Don't really care what you say. Don't really care what you think. We just know that we've been called by God to build this wall, and so we're going to build this wall. And you're going to have to do a lot more than try and chastise us into stopping. Do you, do you think about that type of combat when you attempt to do anything to the Lord? Because that's what's going to happen. You're going to, you're going to declare war, in essence, against the enemy. And the enemy's not going to be happy about it. And you are going to face some, at times, very, very, very stiff competition from the enemy. Verse 7, it says, And now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs and the Ammonites, so now it's gone beyond just these two guys. It's the peoples that surround the entire city. 
By saying the Arabs and the, and the Ammonites, the Ammonites would have been in modern-day Jordan to the east. The Arabs would have occupied everything else. And so they have effectively now made the entire region angry. Sanballat and Tobiah are simply emissaries for all of the peoples that surround Jerusalem. Are you willing to be that different? Are you willing to make enemies of the world to be the friend of God? Are you willing to do what God says in spite of what the world says? Are you willing to be close to the Lord and distant from the world? Because that's the picture here. They were making a very loud and very clear statement. We serve the Lord. And we really don't care what you think. If I could say something to you, that is the church's problem today. The church cares more about what the world thinks than about what God thinks. And that's the reason we're debating things like the definition of marriage. That's why we're debating whether it's okay to have pornography in our schools. That's why we're debating things like, I think we should legislate whether somebody can buy a big gulp or not. That's why we have the problems we do, because we're concerned about things that God is not concerned about, and we are not concerned about the things that God is concerned about. You get the picture? These guys had made a stand. So you know what? Mock us all you want. You own every bit of land outside of this city, but we're going to keep doing what God called us to do. Are you going to stand? Are we going to stand? Is the church going to stand? Are we boldly going to proclaim, you know what? For the sake of political correctness and expediency, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says. This is what it says. This is what we believe, and this is what we will do. And you can mock us and call us old-fashioned all day. You can say we're trying to enforce our morality on the world, and we don't care. Because God has an opinion on the matter. He said it. We believe it. We're doing what he said. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what the people of Jerusalem did. They said, we're willing to be an enemy of the world to be a friend of God. And now it happened. When the Ashdites also heard these things of the walls of Jerusalem being restored and the gaps being closed in. They became very angry. Yeah, their meal ticket was about to go away because these people were the very ones that were taking advantage of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're about to lose a very lucrative part of their business. And don't think that the enemy doesn't enjoy the fact that a vast majority of the church doesn't do things God's way, and so we buy the same stupid things that the world buys. The same lies, the same products, the same sin. They were about to open the temple again and worship God again, and that was a threat to the enemy. Because people who worship God don't sign on to porn sites and give their credit card numbers. People who worship God don't inhabit bars all day long. They don't go to strip clubs. People who inhabit bars do not buy houses they can't afford. They don't change their cars every two weeks. They don't throw money away endlessly. They don't buy 16 flat screen TVs. You see, the same process is at work in our world today. Are we willing to be different? 
Because the enemy's going to go, oh, look what you're going to miss out on. I mean, do you realize, you know, we control everything, and we're going to shut you down. We're going to take away your nonprofit status. If it means denying the Lord, come get it. That's what I say. You can have the building. We'll start a church in the parking lot. That's what you got to do. It's what you have to be. I don't know how that's going to work out. I just know what God's Word says. I'm not going to change the message because somebody in government tells me I can't any longer teach what God's Word says. They tell me I can't teach what God's Word says. I'm going to jail. Is that okay with you guys? It's all right. I'm going to jail. Just know it. Somebody else come and fill the pulpit. When you go to jail, we'll have a cell together. I don't want that, and I'm not threatening anybody. I'm just simply saying what God says I believe. And if I don't believe it, I shouldn't be here teaching it. That's the problem with the church. Rob Bell is, is famous for his position. This is a mega pastor. Some of these guys just make me furious. There is no hell. You better tell that to Jesus, because he preached on it more than he did heaven. There's no hell. Now he's come out just this week. The church needs to apologize to every homosexual in the world, because God didn't intend for people to be monogamous, or that marriage should be defined as a man and a woman. This is a guy who pastors a church of 20,000 people. I'm sorry, my Bible disagrees with that view, loudly and clearly. It's crazy. So what do we go? Well, we'll take away your nonprofit status. Well, you know, you've got to change these things. Family of God, this may be the year that unless God intervenes, we see marriage redefined by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's about to happen. Once that happens, every Bible-teaching church in America is at risk because our president has already said how he's going to enforce it. You either do it our way or you have to be a for-profit corporation. That happens. No more tax deduction for tithing. Every bit of money that comes in is now income and taxed as such. That would throw us into that 1% category, folks. And 40% of everything that you give is going to go to the federal government. That's what's going to happen. That's not a threat, and that's not Jeff overreacting. Happened in Nehemiah's time. The enemy's going to come against And all of them conspired together. Notice this. All of them represents the world. Nehemiah and Jerusalem represents the Lord. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Look at the church and tell me this isn't exactly what's going on in our world today. Going to attack the church. Going to attack God's people. Going to create confusion. Well, you know, you just need to be more tolerant. If you were loving, of course, you wouldn't get in anyone else's business. You wouldn't care about what. 
my Bible is where I get what I teach, what I believe, how I believe God thinks and acts. And because of that, I have an opinion because God has an opinion. It's the same thing that Nehemiah was faced with. In this case, it was the walls of the city. And nevertheless, the enemy launches another propaganda campaign. Nehemiah responds. They make their threats. Notice the cycle here. The enemy comes against. Nehemiah prays. The enemy sends out the propaganda gang. Nehemiah prays. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. Because of them, And I want you to see something very clearly here. Two things. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God. Because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Two things. Prayer and action. They didn't just go, well, we'll just pray and hope God protects us. They also used their heads and said, you know what? This is about God. We need to get active. We need to get involved. We need to do something with what we do know and do have. And so they set a watch. Notice it doesn't say they went to war. It says they set a watch. In other words, they were looking to make sure that they could still have opportunity to do what God called them to do. And the moment the church gives up its ability to have a voice in the world, the enemies won. So if you are not praying and setting a watch... You're opening yourself up because the enemy is a practical enemy as well as a prayerful enemy. And then Judah said, the strength of the labors is failing. And there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And our adversary said they will neither know nor see till we have come to their midst and kill them because so that we can cause their work to cease. Notice the threats. Nehemiah says, we're going to pray and set watch. The enemy says, we're going to come kill you. Now, the story could have ended right there. And I think this is where it translates into our modern world. The story can always end with us. We can be the last Christian generation. We can be the last ones to voice God's opinion on issues of life and godliness in our world. Or we can set a watch and we can keep building. The reason that I am involved with the Family Research Council is for this very reason. Because somebody needs to set a watch. Somebody needs to stand up and say, I'm not going down without a fight. Somebody needs to say, this is the truth, that's a lie. That's why we support those types of endeavors. Because there is a very practical side to the warfare. And if the church simply says, well, that's the world, and this is the church, and the two never mingle, then we've lost. Because your rights will go away. Our ability to meet as a church will go away. And we'll all be sitting around going, I don't know what happened. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, whatever place you turn, they will come upon you. You you, you see, what they're saying is, you guys are outnumbered. Heard that argument recently? Well, you know, that's that's an outmoded way of thinking. I mean, 
The, the demographics, heard this one recently, the demographics in our country has changed. We're no longer a Christian nation. Most people don't think like that because they have progressed. We've gotten progressive. And we're now more tolerant. And so we don't want to have that kind of narrow-mindedness. Yeah, I can just hear Sanballat and Tobias yelling the same things. You narrow-minded Jewish wall builders, you. I mean, really? I mean, you're gonna you're gonna revive the temple? I mean, look around you. Nobody thinks like you do anymore. We're all Amorites. We're all Canaanites. We don't think like that. We're we're liberated now. The way you worship God is old-fashioned. Do you really think that stuff is true? Not much has changed, amen? It's still the way the devil tries to work against the people who really love the Lord. God has an opinion. He's given us his opinion. He's spoken what is true. Jesus said about himself, I am the word. This is him. It's what we know about him. It's a chief way that people understand who God is. We start denying this. We all need to pack our bags. Because we're not long for this world. And we surely won't be salt and light. The strength of the burden, it says in verse 10, burden bearers is failing. You ever feel like that? They did then. This is just too much. I don't want to fight. I have had pastor friends that have said, I'm just tired of fighting. I just want to preach the gospel. Now make no mistake, the gospel is the chief reason the church is here. But if you do not defend the truth of all of what God's word says, you will eventually lose the ability to also preach the gospel. Because the same gospel that teaches us we're saved by grace and through faith also says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The same Bible that says you're going to heaven because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross says, do you not know that fornicators and idolaters and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God? So you can't have one truth without the other. It's a package deal. And so when the church says, well, you know, I mean, it's kind of tough. These stones are heavy. This word that you're speaking to us, I mean, it's not really being received all that well. And people yelled at me and called me bad things. My self-esteem went in the toilet. Been happening for a long time. God's people have always stood out. You know what it means to be sanctified? Set apart. Set aside. Different is the best word that you can use. 
means to be different than the world. So much so that you were associated with the very character of God. And let me tell you something about God. He's one of one. His nature belongs only to him. So when you talk about holiness, you're talking about the character and the nature of God. And that's the character the church is supposed to have. That's why we shouldn't have the same divorce rate as the world. And that's why our marriages should be from the time we make those vows to the time one of us dies or both of us dies. That's why we do have an opinion on abortion. It's sin. It's wrong. God creates life. We don't have the right to tell him that we can take the ones that we think are not viable because of where they live, which is the womb. We we can't do that, folks. And the fact that we have is telling the world we're not much different than them. It's why when the church backs off of these very difficult, very heavy burdens to bear, because it's tough in saying those things, we need to be grieving with those people who've been through those behaviors that have caused them that heartache and that pain. That's not to cast off the person in that sinful behavior. It's to stand against the behavior itself so that nobody else goes through it. That's who Nehemiah was. We're prone to discouragement. We live near our critics. Amen? So did Nehemiah. The world probably lives right next door to you at times. You may work with someone who hates your guts who thinks you're the narrow-minded religious bigot that the news media says you are. Bottom line is, Jesus said the way is narrow that leads unto life. It's what he said. He's got an opinion on the matter. It's not broad. It's not all-inclusive. He's not okay with everything. He's not good with Christians having cocktail parties, okay? He's not. He's not. He's not okay with you smoking recreational dope. He's not okay with it. Be ye not drunk with wine leads unto dispensation, which simply means that your mind is altered. Pot alters your mind. From God's perspective, it's wrong. We have an opinion. I don't care how much legalizing of it you do. It's still wrong. You see, those battles are hard. Oh, well, you know, I've got cancer. People have been having cancer for thousands of years. And they haven't gotten stoned to do something about it. People have been dying for thousands of years. People have been living between 40 and 80 years since the dawn of time. We have an opinion. It's formulated by God. The rocks are going to get heavy. People are going to mock. The opposition is going to come. But Nehemiah focused on the goal, and therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall and at the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. He got them organized. He did exactly what we're doing right now. I'm going to tell you the truth. 
isn't going to be easy. You know what? The enemy's going to attack you. Be ready. See that hole right over there? That hole the enemy could come through. Better plug that hole up. You see, that hole is not true. That hole is, is the enemy trying to get into your life. And you better be prepared because he's coming. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders, to the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. In Jesus' name, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Notice what he says. Great and awesome. Fight for your brethren, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Does that sound like a guy who says, well, you know, I just don't want to make anybody mad. I want everybody to like me. I want everybody to agree on this subject because, you know, the fact that we disagree, you know, the Bible is not everybody believes in the Bible. That would be the problem, not the solution. That's the problem. So you're going to start telling people lies so they'll feel good about themselves? What Nehemiah said was, fight. Stand in the gap and fight. Don't give up. Fight. Remember the Lord. Remember His Word. Remember His promises. Remember His truth. Remember what He said and do it. You see, that's the picture. That's God's people responding to God's word and doing things God's way. That's not, well, you just don't understand my situation. I mean, as a people, we've evolved. I mean, we no longer think those things are wrong. I mean, after all, more than 50% of all couples in America now live in cohabitating situations. They're not actually married. So it must be right. Go to a bar and ask how many people in there believe that being drunk is wrong. You're not going to get any hands, okay? It's the same thing in the world. If you ask the world if there's anything wrong with the world, the world's going to say no. They're going to say there's something wrong with the church. It's idiotic to think any other way. It is a lack of operational brain cells that causes you to think that that's not going to happen. So, of course, when you ask the world, you know, shouldn't we redefine marriage? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be able to be between any two committed people? The world's going to say, uh-huh, because they're L-O-S-T lost. Amen? They don't know the Lord. What do you think they're going to do? Ask people in the bar, well, you know, I, I, I think we should all not get drunk anymore. They're all going to look at you like, get out of here before we throw you out on your face. We're all in here having a good time. You're wrecking our party. Shouldn't surprise us. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be salt and light. We're supposed to tell them the truth. And if you tell them the truth, they're going to get upset. And they're going to say, we're coming after you. We're going to take away your freedoms. Pretty soon you'll see it our way because you're wrong. The sad part is, they are going to see it our way one day, whether it's here on this earth or when they meet the Lord in judgment. 
One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, that he was right, they were wrong, to the glory of God the Father. That's what your Bible says. So one day, they're going to go, Oh, no. And then what's going to happen is, why didn't you stand stronger? How come you gave up? And they'll have a right to ask that question. It'll still be on them. But I know what, for me and my house, I'm going to stand. I'm getting a place in my life where it's kind of almost exciting about maybe dying for Jesus. I'm going to die anyway. Might as well make it count. And it happened that when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing. Don't you love that? <laughs> Nehemiah standing there. Come on, listen to these morons. They don't know what they're talking about. We serve the Lord God of hosts. You really think he brought us all this way across the desert to kill us now? We've been here before would have been another way to look at it. Remember what your forefathers told you about the trip across the Red Sea? This is nothing compared to that. That all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. They got encouraged as they heard someone stand up and say, We ain't giving in. Come kill us if you want, but we're going to keep working. They all went back to work. Holy boldness, sanctified boldness. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at the construction. The other half held spears and shields and bowls, bows and wore armor. And leaders were behind all of the house of Judah. And those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens and loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they had a weapon. They had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They had their Bible in one hand, and they were at work with the other. They hung on to the things of God, and they kept doing what was right. Get the picture? That's what people who love the Lord do. Don't say, well, we're just going to hide right here in our little building with our Bibles. There's a message to be got out that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can't get it out if you give in. You can't get the message out if you give in. If the church compromises any part of the message, the message isn't worth getting out because it's not the message. It's no longer the message that he gave us. It's something else. That's why I've gotten into some heated debates. And again, I try to be as loving as I can. But when someone comes to me and they say, well, I'm okay in this sin, and I, and I know that God's word says something about it, and I say, no, you're not okay in that. You are not okay in that sinful behavior. You cannot profess Christ as Savior and know what His Word says and say you're okay in that behavior. You can't do it. All of a sudden, they're like, oh. You see, that's a sword and a trowel. I'm going to keep working, and I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep doing what God's called me to do, and I want to make sure I have the truth at the ready. As Oliver Cromwell said at the Battle of Marston Moor in the British Civil War in about 
middle 18 or middle 1600s rather there's this pastor who had risen to the rank of lieutenant general uh, in the in the civil army of England at the time and and he was actually a horse officer and he wasn't a very good horseman and as he he was known actually to fall off of his horse relatively frequently he's kind of like Nehemiah's wall builders okay they're And at the Battle of Marston Moor, if you know anything about moors, they're a swamp, basically. They're, they're not a nice place to be. They're basically mud and peat and bogs and swamp. He said, trust in God, but keep your powder dry. Sword, trowel. Trust in the Lord, but don't let your gunpowder fall into the water because it isn't going to go off when you need it. You've got to do both things. Little righteous toughness. Frustrate the plans of the enemy. Rally together. And then every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And then the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the rulers, The work is great and extensive. We're separated from one another on the wall. Where, Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally there. When God calls out, go wherever that fight is. And so we labored at the work. Half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. They did the logical, right things, and they said, you know what, we're going to accomplish this task. And above all else, notice verse 22. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be on guard by night and a working party by day. And so neither, notice this, I, that would be Nehemiah, Nehemiah was not different than the people who labored around him. He was one of them. He was a servant. Neither I nor my brethren, my servants, nor my men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. He stayed in the battle too. We fight it together. We get involved. We we tackle the things that the Lord has for us as a team. We stay on task. We stay on guard. We honor the Lord with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. We fight for Him. We fight because of Him. And we can only fight in Him. And if we do that, we win. Even if we get killed doing it, we still win. Better to be a cupbearer for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the King of the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, for this powerful passage. Lord, may we, like Nehemiah, be so bold. Lord, to just remain in the center of your will, to walk in your truth. Lord, to proclaim that we will not give up, that we will not surrender, that we will not stop until the victory is won. God, we thank you for those who boldly fight right now. Lord, I think of men like Tony Perkins, Tom Colburn, some of these senators and congressmen that just have a a vibrant walk with you who are fighting this fight in Washington, D.C. right now over the sanctity of marriage. We ask you to grant us victory. We pray as Nehemiah prayed. Lord, for your name and for your kingdom's sake, Lord, let us not defame your name in this country. For your people, Israel, we pray that this nation would stand strong and firm. Lord, they're your people, and you declared it. You said those that are against them are against you.
And so, Lord, we stand with Israel. Lord, we pray for the lives of of those babies whose lives this day are being contemplated as forfeit, lost. God, it's abomination to you, and it's, it's a travesty upon the mothers, the fathers of those children. Lord, it's pain of untold imaginable kind. And we ask, God, that you, your church would be strong, that you'd rise up and say enough's enough, no more. We're going to build the wall. We want to worship God. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word and for all that it does in our lives. Bless us, strengthen us, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.